SWB Inc. is our boutique marketing agency. We produce the Boardroom International Surfboard Show, the California Gold Surf Auction, the Boardroom Podcast, and a number of other content creation propositions that may interest your company. We'd love to have a chat with you if you'd like to be affiliated with any of these offerings, or we can, of course, customize something. Reach out via email, scott at boardroomshow.com. The California Gold Surf Auction is once again having its spring auction. Curated, vetted, historically and culturally significant surfboards and ephemera. In April, we'll have boards by Pat Curran, Bing Copeland, Rennie Yater, Dick Brewer, Dale Velzi, Sean Stussy, Tom Eberly, Skip Fry, Steve Liss, Pacific Systems Homes, Greg Knoll, David Nueva, and many, many others. California Gold Surf Auction, setting the mark for the high-end vintage collectible surfboard market. You can download the app, California Gold Surf Auction, using the App Store, or log on to thevintagesurfauctions.com, or do a Google search for California Gold Surf Auction. You know what? It's January, and although we have winter surf on our minds, many of us are already thinking about the spring and summer surf trips to various locations, most importantly, perhaps Indonesia. And I'll be visiting Surfing Village in the Telos Islands. It's surfing-village.com to go check out their offering. There's three ingredients needed for a successful surf trip. Wonderful accommodations, incredible food, and really good empty surf. And this will be my second trip to Surfing Village because they meet those crucial requirements. Surfing-village.com. Tell them I sent you and check out their offering. And now on to the podcast. My friend Cyrus Sutton is a deep thinker and eco-entrepreneur, if you will. I'm not sure what he thinks of that label, but I'm going to throw it on him. He's a super smooth, goofy foot surfer, originally from Orange County, now living in the Pacific Northwest. Cyrus and I get into some interesting conversations, a little bit about surfing, a lot about where we came from and where we're going. On this episode of the Boardroom Podcast, Cyrus Sutton, let us begin. Cyrus Sutton, welcome to the Boardroom Podcast. It's good to see you, man. Good to see you too. Thanks for having me on. How do you do in the afternoons? I had to get a cup of tea in me to just kick out a nappy time. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I've been on the siesta program. I'm down in Mexico. Didn't do one today, but I will get one tomorrow. <laughs> cool. I, without getting into too much detail, where exactly are you? Oh, just, you know, Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Do you, it's interesting how huh, the whole like, don't tell anyone where you are, you know, like it's just, you know, I don't know, limited resource thing. Are you yeah. in mainland Mexico or some other portion of Mexico? <laughs> other. Okay, that's enough info. Is this being recorded? <laughs> are we just talking or is this like being blasted out to the interweb? Um, well, both. I mean, we're recording this. It's not live, but this conversation okay. is the best part of what we'll probably say for the next hour. It's right now. Okay. I do this often with guests to kind of um, get the conversation rolling with you. We don't need to do this because we're pretty good friends. But when was the last time that you danced? Ooh, um, the night before last. 
Really? Explain. Uh, there's just this town I'm in just has a lot of live music and went out and I love cutting a rug and I did just that. So really, you, so you, you love cutting the rug. That's cool. I'm stoked to hear that. Yeah, I, I have fun. Cool. Let's go back a little bit if we can, Cyrus. Um, tell me about your formative surfing years as a teenager. Yeah, I just grew up. Uh, my, my parents divorced when I was one. Um, so my dad took me down to the, the trails south of San Ofre. He was a nudist and liked to play nude volleyball and surf naked on the military base. Um, would walk down, surf Santa a bunch. And then mom was got a teaching job in Long Beach. So Seal Beach was the zone. So between... By the time I started getting really psyched on surfing, I was surfing up there. But mostly it was like weekends with dad. Just trying to be like my pops and, you know, surfing was crazy. Growing up in Orange County where everything is such so much concrete. It's like right there is the wilderness, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I loved it. And I mean, all the cliche things everybody says, it's always different, always changes. I don't know what it is. Dogs go crazy on the beach. There's some negative ion stuff going on <laughs> yeah 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 here i am <laughs> but so, then yeah. then i made a surf film and this gentleman by the name of scott bass like did an article on me and that <laughs> pretty much kicked off my whole career <laughs> yeah that was how old were you then that was a first of all that was a film that you did with rob and with john pack right or set, set me straight here because i i kind of forget i was 19 uh it was a day in the life of five different surfers and yeah, just fresh out of, I took, I think I took like three classes in college and they were like film production classes and cleaned pools for summer and got a video camera and was surfing like the local pro tour and met and was surfing with different guys and got intros to different people and made a film. Yeah. It's funny. You know, you mentioned um, Orange County and um, I know that I've, I think your father or your mother, somebody lived in Laguna Beach at one point. And um, that's certainly a competitive breeding grounds. Like I think of like Chris Morrow, who I worked with at Surfer and Mike Parsons and Pat O'Connell. I don't see you as aligning with that group, but is this something that you did? Did you do competitive surfing as a youngster? Oh yeah. It was all about contests. Uh, they were great. It was like, it just provided structure. And I remember I was really, <laughs> I was reading my old journals when I was a kid. And, uh, yeah, we don't really change, do we? It's so funny. I was like, so analytical of my surfing and had my like diet, my exercise routine and the things I was working on. And it was so funny. Um, but it just gave structure. And I remember, uh, I remember I used to love to lose, uh, because it was like, I felt like if I was winning too much on like these, you know, whatever NSSA stuff, you know what I mean? that I was, yeah, I don't know. It was bad for me. I had like that level of cognizance at that point. <laughs> so. what, what do you mean it was bad for you? Like um, your ego would get too inflated or how do you mean winning was bad for you? Yeah, I just think like growing up in a broken home and having like a single mom who was a teacher, I just knew that whatever I needed to do in life, I needed to like take it pretty seriously. And whether it was school or I was like really into baseball, you know, before surfing and I had like a pitching coach and, you know, I was, my dad would take me to the batting cages and I was just really, I knew I wasn't going to get, have anything given to me. And so I needed to be competitive or whatever I did if I wanted to do something 
that I loved. It seemed like a lot of people wanted to do those things. So, yeah, I think it was just like, you know, I had like an internal drill sergeant. It was like, don't get too soft. <laughs> Has that changed at all? Oh, God, I'd be lying if I said it had. No, I'm still pretty. Yeah, I still I still keep going. Um, it's different now. But yeah, just I don't know how else to be. I like I like doing things that scare me. I like doing things that are really hard. I don't know if I'm an adrenaline junkie, probably, but in like a different way. I think I'm just curious, really. Like, I think I think, you know, anything we do in life, you could probably attest to this. Like sometimes necessity pushes us to do certain things. But then there's like a beauty in the pushing and a transcendence and a calm and a peace from, yeah, doing something that maybe made you uncomfortable to think of in the beginning. Yeah. So I think that that's like, that's been the silver lining of all of it is I just have this like this liberation that comes from pushing limits. And well, you mentioned you were 19, you made a film. I sense that you were destined to always be a, a bit of a storyteller. For my generation, it was Bill Delaney's Free Ride. For others, perhaps it was Taylor Steele's Momentum. Was there a surf film which moved you beyond any other that was inspirational? Was there a surf movie like that for you? Hmm. I mean, yeah, there were a lot of different ones. And it was more, I think, like the just seeing the different waves around the world. You know, growing up with Orange County, it feels like things are kind of monochrome. and uh, Except for, you know, maybe evening offshores in the fall but a lot of gray days and you, you just see i don't know like thicker than water or shelter or, or bruce brown's the endless summer just people go into these wild places and especially from orange county where you're essentially on like this gray grid that just sprawls forever you're on like a microchip and you're <laughs> looking at the, the the wild world and through something that you're directly engaging in and it's giving you feedback uh, whether or not you're fitting into that rhythm and to see that manifest through different athletes and, and artists collaborating. I mean, obviously that's enchanting. <laughs> well, um, you know, it's, I, I looked on your Instagram page and I'm like, Holy crap. This guy does stuff. Like you just get into action. You know, and you've always been there. You just do things. Where did you learn to build things? Like, how did you learn to just, it seems like you just decided to pick up a saw and just start cutting, you know, like there was no school. I mean, we all have YouTube university these days, you know, I mean, I don't know. I think ain't nothing to it, but to do it, you know, we can all, it's none of it's building codes and the way we build things these days is, it's really fascinating. There's a lot to it. And it's really cool and there's a right way to do it. And especially up north where I've built my place is a lot more, I wouldn't say arduous, but but a lot more um, exacting in the way that you need to do stuff or else it's going to fall apart because of the weather and the rain. But it's not that crazy. Like most of the materials, we're not like hand hewing logs anymore, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of geometry. And I had a lot of help. You know, I hired people when I didn't know what I was doing. And sometimes I should have hired people and I didn't. <laughs> um but yeah, I just, I don't know. I like to yeah. do stuff. Yeah. Action oriented. What about surfboards? Have you ever built yourself a surfboard? I did. I got into it in North County a little bit, but quickly learned that my friends were much better at than I than, and I could just stay in my lane and make films and stuff. Yeah. 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 
I, I see here recently that you went to South America to go surfing. Tell me yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah, that was a. I was directing a little a short film for Patagonia about um just it, the working title is like how to save a wave, um and Peru is really interesting because it's the first nation to codify or put into legit legislation uh, wave protection, and that happened through a confluence of obviously heritage, um, booming tourist economy. Uh, the fact that how to do it all, like the the local wave to Lima, this is the capital and um, the, houses most of the affluent members of, of, you know, government and the who's who got incredibly degraded because of development. And a lot of people in Lima surf and they saw, you know, what's at stake when, when, when they don't protect the waves. So that's put into like it's it's created a pathway for these guys. It's called Hazla Portuola, and they worked with Surfrider and Save the Waves and different organizations. But they're they're putting together a surfers like a toolkit for international surfers to um, recognize pathways within their existing governments to protect waves. Um, and it has been done all over the world, but Peru's um, I think they're on thirty three now, and their goal is to do hundred. So they protected 33 different waves in in their in their country. Um, so I went down there to like storytell and shoot, and a lot of it was they had existing footage, but I helped write the script with them. And um, then I got to stay, which has kind of been what I've been trying to do this year is sort of like a resolution is to like stay at a place after I shoot for a week, at least a week, and just like have a vacation because I've spent so many years traveling, but it's only been for work. Which is funny because people probably think of me as like, I don't know, this intrepid traveler person, but I've always like gone there with a bunch of stuff, you know, boards and cameras. And I've always envied the crew that can just hang out. So trying to do that now. What does it look like when, when somebody like Patagonia says, hey, Cyrus, we want you to be involved here. Um, go down to uh, South America and 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 help us out with this movie. I mean, do you have a meeting with them and go, well, here's what my thoughts are. And, you know, like. I guess it's not as simple as you just flying down there and just going, I'm here to save the project. You know? like, no, I mean, it, it, it differs with different clients in Patagonia is really unique in that like a lot of their marketing is around, you know, legit documentaries. So they have like a whole department, you know, one for long form and then one for short form and they hire me as a director. So as a director, I like to shoot and write and edit if I can, but with Patagonia, I don't typically edit. Um, last couple projects so i just have a number of meetings with them and we kind of flesh out the story and i do a good amount of research and then meet have meetings you know like we're doing now with people down there or wherever the project is and then um yeah i try to i typically try to pick like different storytelling devices i call them i kind of have like a a russian doll you know what those are like those nested yeah. kind of thing yeah. approaches to media where I try to almost like make a teaser and then slightly longer teaser and then a slightly longer film. And they all kind of come one after another to like capture people's attention spans at the depths at which they resonate. So if I think about all that and I, I, you know, I get heady in with the clients and just talk about what their aims are and those kinds of things and, and then go down and try to be in the moment and have fun and, and keep everybody stoked and do the job. When I think about it, I'm like, okay, 
I want there to be a surprise as a filmmaker. I'm like, I know that here's the script I wrote and here's what I think is going to happen. And here's the two, five talking heads I'm going to get. And here's the B roll and blah, blah, blah. But I'm always looking for, oh my God, left field just happened. This came way out of left field. I wasn't expecting that. And that seems like those moments where you can kind of guide a story arc towards, are you always constantly on the, the prowl for something surprising? It depends. Um, what was your was your film between the lines is that was was that the title of it yeah yeah okay let's do a plug for between the lines it's just like one of the best surf movies ever made that i don't think enough people know about where where can we find that uh you can find it on ira offers surf news network okay so surf the surf network yeah i think it's called Sur the surf network yeah that's what it's called yeah okay yeah that was an, that was an incredible film um and i'm not just saying that because i'm on your podcast I, I think that it depends. It depends on how long the project is. A lot of these shorter ones, we obviously are open to anything that unfolds and any verite we can capture. Um, and that's great, but we have to be completely prepared for having none of that and being creative with the storytelling and with the camera angles and the sh shot sequences to try to hold people's attention. And sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. I think that usually the way that I know I'm going to make something that I feel good about is if I get excited about the, the content and I'm excited about a lot of stuff. So it, it tends to work out. I mean, I'm just, I think that especially the stuff that Patagonia is doing is, um, yeah, it resonates, you know. I mean, I'm yeah. not, I'm probably their archetypal consumer. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Tell me about this film about the Irish culture and the Gaelic language. I just saw a little teeny niblet on your Instagram about it. It seems like this is a movie that you're you know, I've I've getting I'm getting a lot of editorial license and leeway here. Yeah, that that was one of the the later films I did with Guayaki when I was a creative director there. Um, yeah, it was, uh, we, we shot different music docs. Um, the founder of Guayaki is a musician and is a like passionate, you know, supporter of the arts, especially music. And in this woman is somebody who, uh, Pia, um, is like a opera trained vocalist. And so she, she calls herself a song collector. She goes to different cultures. She's been to Turkey. She's been all over and like, tried to learn uh, cultures through through music and through syntax and through language and which I think is a fascinating way of moving through the world and you know, the film that had a twist in it in the sense that we um, kind of learned some history about Ireland that has to do with colonialism and which is like a topic that I'm really interested in um, so yeah we, we were able to kind of have a little twist in there and kind of talk about some things that made the film, I think actually not releasable for a while. <clears throat> and then we felt like now was the time we finished it a while ago and kind of sat on it through COVID and a lot of that stuff. So. Hmm, that's interesting. It was, it was not releasable because the content was too spicy. Well, I think it, it just, mm, um, the message of the film sort of taps into the cyclical nature of colonialism 
and displacement and kind of trauma that most people in the West are dealing with at some level. And I think that it was the, you know, the attention during COVID was a lot on um, like creating equity and Black Lives Matter and that kind of thing. And we felt like, you know, from a Waikiki brand standpoint that turning the narrative on, you know, white people being colonized and, um, you know, that, that, that kind of broadening the lens at a time that our, our, our zeitgeist had gotten uh, very specific was maybe not the most mm -hmm. polished way of moving forward. Wow. Look at you. You're quite the diplomat these days too. I get what you're saying. You're basically saying it might not have been the best time to market a film about that specific group of people. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we all have to be pretty diplomatic these days and there's a lot of um, people have, a lot of people are trying to grasp what's going on in the world, you know, and there's a lot of, a lot of pain. So, yeah. Tell me about, um, uh, native Americans. What are your thoughts on native Americans? I know that's a broad friggin' <laughs> subject. I, I bring it up because we just had this feature film and great book, and I've just finished a couple of other books. Is this a, I guess, let me ask you, I'll ask it like this. Is this something you, you've, done films on before documentaries or whatever have you been creative with this concept this idea and if not is this something that that interests you well i mean to answer your question yes um i work with an organization called indigenous regeneration based in san diego and my friend Lacey cannon runs that um i did a number of projects with them last year yeah i mean where do you want to i mean you, just, you know the i don't people know of turtle, the people of turtle island have been here a long time and um you know, we came here to um, escape persecution and basically colonialism from Europe and resource extraction and cultural displacement. And we took a lot of that sort of grit and determination to kind of cleave a new way for ourselves and sort of guns germed and, and steeled it, but then also brought a lot of different species over, which changed the landscape. That the native people, you know, continue to um, have relationships with, and so it's changed a lot of their home. And we're here, and yeah, we've. It's this is the latest machination in a long line of displacement, and um, yeah. <laughs> Do you think, from a thirty thousand foot level, it's just, it's just something that's happened in human civilization forever? Like you say, a machination, you know, like colonialism or hegemony in some form has just been, it's been a constant of the selfish nature of the human species. I don't think so. I think that 98% of our earthly tenure as homo sapiens, we've lived in pretty egalitarian societies. Uh, the Davids might disagree with their new book that I have a book club uh, with my buddies on. Um, but what's the name of the book? It's called the dawn of everything. It's really cool. It it sort of is a bit of a takedown of a lot of the big history books, like you have all Harari Sapiens or mm -hmm. Jared Diamond Guns Germs and Steel or Collapse, and it. Mm -hmm. But they create a lot of straw men for their argument, and they kind of make up a lot of stuff, and they ignore a lot of anthropology um, pre nineteen seventies kind of stuff. It probably would have flown, flown, but they ignore a lot of the developments since then and try to expand things that aren't really 
the consensus in the scientific community or in, in at least in the anthropological community. So, I mean, obviously this is something I'm super passionate about. Like this is what I nerd out on all the time is like political theory, anthropology, how we got here. Um, so, I mean, I don't have colonialism, I think is something that is, I'm so deep in this. It's hard to like, not, like side swipe this show and talk about it for an hour or two because that's what i do with my friends so i don't i mean Go ahead. dude i don't care i'm more <laughs> interested in this than surfing believe me same <laughs> um yeah i mean okay well so in the in the ice age we were primarily immediate return hunter-gatherer societies which have been associated with the most egalitarian kinds of societies um groups of people, bands. We were mostly bands. We weren't even tribes. We, they, they, um, anthropologists, the consensus within anthropology is that we weren't patrilineal or matrilineal. We didn't pray to our ancestors. It was, we didn't have, we had very loose affiliation with gods and religion. Um, but the beginning of the Holocene, the climate stabilized, um, and there became increasingly, um, uh, common for us to be delayed return hunter-gatherers with different kinds of uh, horticulture um, in which we would, you know, spread seeds of some tobacco that we liked or um, medicine or fuel or fiber or shelter or you know, entertainment crops. Um, but those immediate, those delayed return societies started to become a little more hierarchical um, things really kicked off in the Indus Valley and, you know, in Mesopotamia and the tailwaters of the Colorado, which was the Hopi and the Dene and the Yangtze River Valley, kind of all at the same time. And that was because the Holocene sort of like stabilized things and it created um, really consistent floodplains from the glacial retreats. And that like all of a sudden, like vastly expanded your ability to practice agriculture. A lot of the early agricultural societies weren't inherited inherently hierarchical um they they happen on things called turtlebacks there's this anthropologist i'm forgetting his name finnish guy who postulated that there was like a climatic change like a climate change event that lasted a number of like a few hundred years that created droughts and then compacted people um between these turtleback who basically lived on like perennial islands in the middle of a floodplain that they could walk across sometimes and then in the flood season but the reason people practice agriculture at a larger scale and it increased population density is because is because hunter gatherers would have to like they would really limit their population size because of they needed to travel a lot. Um, so women would have kids. They practice different forms of infanticide, and they would have kids every like four years on average, maybe three to four, I think. And all of a sudden, with agriculture, you're sedentary, you have more kids. Um, this climatic change event introduced um, irrigation which that was again the tipping point of having slaves and having a class system and building walls to keep people in as much as to keep people out. Uh, you were creating more people, you're creating more work. And that started like this sort of diminishing return situation of resource extraction, expansion, war. The very few examples of actual war um, create this specific kind of toy poodle form of agriculture because agriculture is so broad broad and we think of you know agriculture as being this monolith but it's really this usually grain ones that are based agricultural systems that are based on root crops 
in the tropics or subtropics or harvestable all year, therefore like less taxable. But when you have a grain in a temperate zone that can be like patrolled by the leader, then you're you're really creating hierarchy. You're setting up, you know, more and more robust forms. Uh, we think of history as this is there's like a, this notion of stagism in which we think that things were always a certain way, but then also things have gotten more, we've progressed for better or worse. We've progressed. And a lot of us sort of swallow the notion of like the Hobbesian view that life was nasty, brutish and short, or the Rousseauian view that, you know, we were these innocent sort of hunter gatherers and life was simple, but now things have gotten more complex. Things are just the way they are. But if you look at history, like people dove into agriculture, they bailed, they went back to hunting and gathering. It's sort of common knowledge within the anthropological community that hunting and gathering was like the shit, right? That's why like a lot of people want to do it now. Everybody wants to be a hunter-gatherer and they worked very little. They had a lot of time for leisure and arts and things and depending on the, the bioregion, um, but it was a much better lifestyle. So they would like people primarily throughout time would return to a, a simpler situation. Um, the One of the, regardless of their practicing nomadic pastoralism, different forms of hunter-gatherism, horticulture, um, agriculture, sort of the constant in all of that is the ability to walk away. Um, say you have a king that's too big for its britches or a chief that's trying to have sex with your daughter or something that you're not down with. If you had the ecological literacy to bail and like live on the land, at least until you found another group. And you also had access to like pointy sharp tip weapons and your daughter does too. And you all hunt and it's a, something called like a reverse dominance hierarchy theory. And so that really selectively called the alpha males by and large from societies all over the world. And where if somebody got, you couldn't, you can only coerce people so much if they don't need you. And it's as soon as we become beholden to agriculture and increasingly desertified areas in the Holocene that were river valleys, um, the scarcity mindset that that created, a lot of the depletion of soil um, and trees that civilizations that grew up out of agriculture because of the amount of population allowed to grow, the resource extraction created less rain, created less resources, created scarcity, and allowed people to, or, or didn't allow people to say, you know, get out of here or I'm bailing. So we were all native to some place. Uh, you know, Ireland was colonized. The, the, the great famine in which 1.3 million people emigrated across, you know, to the different Commonwealth nations, that was a forced starvation. You know, a lot of that was like, a lot of those fields were, you know, food is being exported back to Europe. It, that, that number of people didn't, was, it definitely was exacerbated by a, a heavy colonial component. And, you know, the people of England were tribes before that, you know, and then they got colonized. And mm -hmm. um, so it's just sort of this, this thing and it works. And I think our brains are hardwired to create patterns out of chaos and, we want to organize things in order to mitigate from catastrophes or abnormalities in climate. So we're trying to constantly try to control and sculpt our environments. And it seems like deep history shows that 
we organize chaos until it becomes a barrel and it becomes really beautiful and then it crashes into white water and starts all over again uh, and i think we're kind of in that moment right now Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're bringing some major, some major stuff there. I'm in awe of uh, your knowledge of it all. Do you listen by chance to Dan Carlin? Dan Carlin's Yeah, I was really, uh, I was a big fan of those. I think it's he's really cool in the sense that he's like just this magnanimous storyteller, right? He's just yeah, he's got the voice, and you know, it's a blood and gore, and I think a lot of what the zeitgeist around what he shares is like life was freaking gnarly and like yeah. be stoked and be prepared and also don't take anything for granted. Um, I've since one, kind of the, of, one of one of the great things he does, as you know, is he'll cite sources um, as much as he can real, um, you know, first primary sourcing. And yeah. for instance, if he's talking about people of the step, he won't he won't just talk about one person's point of view, but he'll get all 15, 20 different people's points of view and then try to crystallize some reality out of it rather than just take the, you know, the guy who won the wars version of what happened. And I love his critiques of the sources, you know, like, well, this guy was kind of an alcoholic, it seemed like, or like, you know, that a lot of the stuff was intranslatable because this text was like burned half or, you know, somebody spilt wine on this page or um. <laughs> Yeah, he's pretty cool. I I, I have a bit of an issue. I, I'm becoming, I mean, I'm forming, starting to form a little bit of my own opinion around it. I'm being very careful to limit my um, open-mindedness. I'm very, very young at it. And I know there's yeah. so much to learn, but from what I am learning and starting, it seems like what he, the zeitgeist around like what he shares is very much of like an the empire the the clashes the wars and i think we all grew up with history books that sort of talk about you know the beginning of thought and philosophy or like 
the stem from the first major empires like Greece, the Western empires, Greece and Rome. And maybe there's Confucius thrown in there. Um, but like, and then everything is about like progress and civilization and the wars that have been fought. And it's kind of like anything that happens in between is like the dark ages or um, it's, it's primitive. And I, I'm really fascinated by what happens in those dark ages and what, what is being done by the quote unquote primitive people. Mm -hmm. Cause I think it really steers our minds towards this illusion of progress. And also this, um, that Hobbesian narrative that like before or Rousseauian, like we were either innocent or. Well, like, let suck. me ask, let me, let me challenge you or ask you this yeah. in these little spaces that you speak of between sort of big, what, well, for lack of a better phrase, large moments in history that, that you say that, which are correct, that we sort of pin on the timeline as important features on the timeline are these war moments. But these these moments that you're intrigued by that are in between that aren't necessarily excavated, assuming a lot of good stuff happened there but didn't get told about it, it seems like that good stuff was so good that at some point one group of people said, hey, Let's go get that. And they had the warring ability to go and not only take that resource that this that the sort of utopian civilization or group of people or whatever built up, arts and culture, we don't really know, right? Because it's these little dark moments in history. But somebody goes, that stuff's good. Let's go get it. And they had the, the warring ability to go and take it not only that, but smash whatever culture was there and sort of stamp it out. And and I think that's why these these warring moments on our timeline uh, are on our timeline because it's he Dan's big into you know the victor is the one who gets to tell history. Yeah, no, I agree. I just I would challenge you that for the vast majority of Homo sapiens existing on Earth, that was not the paradigm and because we are on the Everest of the largest, most destructive and amazing and powerful empire ever, arguably, um, for our time, that we think that like that's like that always happens. But I think that if you if you look at um, the way nature works and like the way we're involved with nature, that it 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 decomposes and dematerializes much more than it organizes into a post-war clean slate or uh, a very hierarchical, clean, organized, regimented structure. So I don't, I think history is on my side and I say that I think, yeah, I mean, you can celebrate those things, but they're anomalies, you know, it's not, it's not actually culture. It's not actually, um, it's a, oftentimes wars are like a displacement of culture mm -hmm. and a creation of purity, but nature, abhors a vacuum and diversity equals security in nature and diversity means usually pretty low-tech kind of rootsy stuff yeah you know in many ways as i sit here and think about it your transitory nature your your trans your movement from laguna beach from orange county to the pacific northwest it's almost like you're embodying this you're sort of living this i don't know about that i think um maybe but it's also colonial. Well, let me just say that it was surprising to me that you moved to the Pacific Northwest. Not really. Like I could see Cyrus moving to the Pacific Northwest, but you just friggin' did it. Like you just went and did it. And before you know it, you're building this home and you're doing this stuff. That's 
like in my mind, I'm like bowing down going, holy mackerel, this guy is amazing. Like that he's just doing this stuff. So I'll, that's the end of my interruption. Go ahead. I mean, I don't know. I just, I, I, I look at the amount of systems that have to work in order for Southern California to enjoy the lifestyle that is enjoyed. And the more I dug into steel reinforced concrete, Army Corps of Engineer, like deep on engineering reddits and looked at the proposed lifespans of our bridges and our roads and our dams and our nuclear plants and all the things, aqueducts, um, to, from, you know, water desertification, lack of scientific proliferation beyond 20 years, scholarly papers around transpiration and what we've done to the Central Valley. Like, I just, it just doesn't seem so should like we be a- following you because it feels like you're like i'm getting the hell out of here this place is about to go to hell oh, it feels man. like you know something i don't know i don't know i don't know i just know that um <laughs> you know it's 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 all good but uh i just feel like yeah there's just a few less variables there for me and i can kind of i don't know man yeah you're an amazing guy you know i'm so fascinated by you sometimes i I uh, not so much now, but in the past, I would sort of follow you, and I felt like you had the weight of the world on your shoulders. Like you were just like, it felt like you had to solve. You were out to solve every friggin' problem, you know. And and is that a correct uh, characterization of you? Oh man, nothing's changed. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how to. I mean, why not? Right. I mean, we have act unparalleled access to information. Why isn't I, I? I trip out on like why isn't everybody doing everything they can to what give is, our? What is your answer to that? Why aren't? Why aren't? I cannot speak for anybody else. It just makes me super bummed out. If it seems I... kind of Hobbesian, though, doesn't it? <laughs> I love it. Um, you know, it's my yoke to bear, and I just find that. You know, to get psych to psychoanalyze myself, I think that I'm a pretty sensitive person and I care a lot about people. And I feel like I've always been kind of like an outcast in a way. My dad was adopted. Um, I'm an only child, like retreating into this like bigger world in which I can try to understand and like provide. And I think also my brain. I mean, I'm probably neurodivergent, you know, slightly autistic in a way. And so my brain, um, I have a hard time like with certain social cues and just like chumming it up. And I, I try to figure, and I think that's part of being neurodivergent is like you have, you start trying to figure out like deeper things that are going on, like why people are doing what they're doing. Or so I'm always like looking for the source and just makes me stoked to nerd out on something and go surfing and yeah, like balancing it out with just being in nature and playing music with my friends and talking about stuff. Uh, this seems like the best stuff to talk about. What about family? Yeah, my mom's here in Mexico with me. No, no, no. You creating a family. <laughs> yeah, I'm down. I've kind of like wanted to do it in a certain way. And I've set up my life to do it in a way that I would feel good about. And yeah, I, I, I don't take that lightly, you know, having kids, I don't, I want to be 
uh, yeah, I guess in general in life, I just like try to be careful about what I create and the implications of those things. And kids yeah. are probably the biggest thing we do. So yeah. I don't know. You got any tips? <laughs> I, I don't. Um, I think you would be a great father though. In fact, I know you would be a great father. It, it's interesting to me because, because I sense that you have such strong uh, convictions about the world that like, I, I'm, I meant I'm anticipating you like, homeschooling your kid and setting up this like perfect system and then him just going hey dad fuck you i want to go to the skate park in orange county <laughs> and just like ruining the whole fucking thing that we set up for him you know or her oh yeah no i i don't think i'm going to be the captain fantastic dad in that regard i think uh anybody haven't seen that movie it's a good one um yeah i mean is this in the is this in the 10-year plan or is this more like hey if it happens it happens yeah i'm not too you know right right and okay. if i have kids too it's like you know whatever i'll, I'll just go yeah. with the flow i mean All right. i feel like i've been really blessed to be able to kind of pursue a lot of my own ideas of whatever the heck one could do in this life and you know would would that by the way i apologize if i'm getting too personal and i probably am but Oh, it's what's making this podcast fun. Yeah, man. You gotta, you know. Do you think you're too it. selfish to, to have a kid? No, not at all. I think my selfishness is a utility of being successful as a creative person and it and it goes to about that extent. Yeah. And um I've reined it in for various relationships and various situations all the time. But yeah, if, if I'm in a position where I have a clear, clear runway. I mean, I might as well delve into this stuff and try to make some shit happen. Probably, you know, you can relate. Like, you've had times in your life where you're like, well, I can do whatever the heck I want to do, so I'm going to go do it because if I do it well, it'll take care of other people. Let me ask you this. <laughs> Is surfing an uninteresting topic from a filmmaker's or a storyteller's point of view? Is surfing boring? I mean, what's interesting to anybody anymore? I don't even know. Like, what are, where are our attention spans? Like, in some ways, it's the most compelling thing ever without needing to instill any narrative into it because it's just a kinetic, beautiful dance, you know, with nature. So I think it's one, it's like simultaneously the most compelling and simultaneously like the least compelling if we're like trying to, to sculpt some narrative around it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, it's so cliche that it's kind of like, first of all, it's all been done before there's what what can we do that's that's new and frankly talking about sort of commercialized surf culture is boring as all hell i think the most interesting topic in surfing is people who quit surfing oh <laughs> uh, i think there's a lot of really interesting things about surfing and i don't know why it hasn't been done give me one let's hear a story I have to, i'm gonna hold those close to my chest because i might want to do them one day all right. Fair enough. Um, I used to give away all my ideas on podcasts. Oh, uh, you learned your lesson. Yeah, just, you know. Yeah. Share everything. But I know, I think that there's a lot of like, there's a lot of just nuts and bolts of surfing that's really rad. And I think that everybody's been trying to imbue it with some magical, mystical, romantic thing when it's really just people who are like coasting on the post-World War II petrodollar supremacy of like having a lot of cash in other places and being able to party it up and do the best things in life. It's kind of devoid of like what 
humans have had to do for a long time. And that's like, there's nothing really pithy about that. It's just kind of a cool party and beautiful and awesome. And it's like a firecracker. It's like a fireworks show. It's like beautiful and ephemeral. Huh. Interesting. Very interesting. What are your thoughts on nu- nuclear energy? Uh, I don't know. I don't know enough. I know that it's uh, a complicated topic. I think that, yeah, there's just so many ways that we can make energy or we can do stuff that is a little smaller scale using the the radiation of the sun, um, not necessarily through photovoltaics, like, you know, lithium extraction. Um, and that's what really excites me. It's just all these low-tech solutions that people can tinker with and fix themselves and isn't made overseas by like mining the desert or doing all these things. And I know that there's a lot of proponents of nuclear technology. I think it's obviously something that like quote unquote nuanced thinkers thinks has been given a bad rap. Um, I think that it's probably like anything. It's like, you know, talking about like veganism or vegetarianism, it's not the cow, it's the how, but I think that there's a lot of like systemic issues around the way in which we make decisions in our country that has a pretty long track record of not considering local communities. <laughs> so under that like legacy, introducing something as powerful as n- nuclear technology is like kind of, I don't know, raises undemocratic. Some, well, it just raises some red flags because, you know, we haven't taken yeah. into consideration local communities of like where we put the waste and like how we build things and still reinforce concrete and you know all that stuff you have a real jeffersonian sort of outlook like just you know small little communities and they control their their destiny is that is that fair no i think that's okay yeah i don't know i think it's like I, i would describe myself as like a communist slash anarchist like i think the political sphere the 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 political landscape is more of a sphere and we're taught to think of like the front side which is like the marketed with all the hype around it and it's like corporatized and centralized and there's like the back side in which like unabomber shit meets you know (laughs) the most communist stuff ever and they're actually not that different it's just you're getting away from corporately controlled interests in which wealthy individuals can lobby a million x their say on whatever they want and it's not really it's not really democracy it's not really like liberty, I mean, we've lost what all those terms even mean. We've lost what yeah. equality means. Like all those have become obfuscated. I think through think tanks to try to confuse people, and yeah. and now we have technology that can like literally change the way we think about certain topics because it our brains are hackable by algorithms. Yeah, that AI thing you put out on Instagram was amazing, man. That was kind of both scary, and I didn't know if it was sarcastic, and I didn't know if. The- <laughs> If the brands that you put in there were, I was, that's what, that's what got me. I, I got to talk to Cyrus. I haven't talked to Cyrus in a long time, but that AI piece you put out, I was like, holy shit, this guy's a deep that thinker, was, man. That brought me in the door, huh? Okay. Yeah. Well, I've known that you're just a, a deep, sweet soul forever, but I mean, that one was like, I need to talk to Cyrus. That's some heavy shit. Well, look, I've asked a lot of you and I appreciate your uh, candor. Um, it's been fun chatting with you. Um, we went in an area that neither of us thought we would go, and I'm so glad we did. And uh, I appreciate you, and thanks for being on the Boardroom Podcast with me. Oh, thanks, Scott, for having me on. I appreciate it, and let's surf sometime. It's okay, buddy. I'll talk to you soon, I hope.
Peace. Yeah. Made it.
And don't forget to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash surf. That's linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.